Hello, Classic Crew, and welcome back to Classically Abbey Live. Here on my podcast, we get more in-depth on topics that fit in with my classic perspective and traditional values. As a premium subscriber, you get access to three exclusive podcast episodes every month. Today, I have my husband, Jacob, joining me for the podcast. I did mention on some previous episodes of Classically Abbey Live that Jacob would be joining me, and today is the first the first time he's on the show so it's inaugural it's inaugural it's legendary so welcome it's momentous how it's do you tremendous. feel do you feel incredible i i mean let's move on from that question <laughs> it's an odd situation for us to be recording a podcast because we've recorded videos for my channel but we haven't had the opportunity to record something where we weren't being filmed and this is a lot more casual it's kind of nice and easy we can look each other in the eye we don't have to worry about how we appear it feels simultaneously more and less performative because there's not a camera to be looking at i'm just staring aggressively into my wife's eyes to assert dominance uh it feels less performative but because there's not a natural sense of audience there you have to astroturf that sensibility to yourself of like i have to keep in mind that i have an audience when otherwise i could just think that i'm talking to you Abigail. Yeah, yeah. And so it is more and less performative. Yeah. So there's that. It's, well, I mean, it's weird for me is too. Is it faker? Is it more real? I, I don't know. <laughs> we shall <laughs> well, see. Yeah. And it's weird for me too, because when I've recorded the podcast on my own, it's really no different than recording a video, yeah. except that again, there's not the visual aspect. Well, but how in- often do you talk to yourself? Just by myself? Not so often, actually. Yeah, not so often. Whereas we talk to each other, that's like... At least a daily occurrence. 90% of what we do is talk at each other. (laughs) True enough. So today we're going to do a film roundup for Spooktober. And I call October Spooktober. Uh, We watched six movies in anticipation of this season. I won't call it spooky season. Don't call it spooky season. Jacob hates it. It's the worst. (laughs) It's a terrible turn of phrase. I know. It is pretty bad. I hate it. It is pretty bad. It's up there there with food porn. Oh. Terrible word. Yeah, terrible. Not the same kind of terrible, not for the same reasons, but just, I hate it. Yeah, fair enough. And so we watched a few movies, three of which we really enjoyed, or at least yeah, I would say really enjoyed. Yeah, three of which were a good time, three of which were a bad time, and in anticipation of our discussion, we realized we could actually, actually, with an A-C-K-S-H-U-A-L-L-Y, internet style, actually, uh, <laughs> pair them off with one another in kind of uh, thematic groupings of a good and a bad, a good and a bad, and a good and a bad. Exactly. Uh, which was... Very convenient and absolutely unintentional. We were initially intending to talk about more than just movies today, but Jacob and I enjoy talking so much that adding anything on to a film roundup of six movies may have made this podcast two hours long. In in our experience, adding anything on to a review of a single movie could make something too long. Yes. So you all are spoiled today (laughs) by a a complete uh, glut of our conversation. Yeah, get ready. This is going to be probably at least a somewhat lengthy podcast. Ooh, we'll see. We'll we see what see happens. We'll see the end result. Edit in whether or not we have. I don't know. <laughs> but it's going to be fun. And I'm excited. 
As you guys probably know, I really like fall, I really like October, and this is a fun month to, to watch movies. Now, I'm also somebody who does not like horror. Let's get this out of the way right at the beginning. I do not like horror movies. I like spooky, fun, Disney-style kind of spooky, happy skeletons. That, that to me... Spooky, scary skeletons or spooky, happy skeletons? You know what? Sometimes those two go hand in hand. Mm. Uh, and I'm good with that. I like it. I like the fun, spooky stuff. But I do not like creepy, upsetting, jump scares, uh, like horror horror. That to me is upsetting. Well, uh, as you and I discussed when we were going to start watching these movies, I draw a line in the sand between genuine genuine horror and scary. Because yeah. scary is we're going to ramp your adrenaline up, make your pulse pound, and then have things pop out at you and do the, the boogity-boo. Whereas <laughs> horror is something that it, it plays on expectations, it's unsettling, it's interesting, it's creepy. I'm not a big horror fan by any means. I do not watch this stuff on my own and find it interesting. I'll like look up about these movies because I think the creativity involved in thinking of a scary concept is actually kind of interesting. But uh, I don't go out there to watch this stuff for my personal entertainment. But nonetheless, there is a real difference between just scary, which is kind of like... Yeah, it's trashy. Ooh, a thing popped out at you and it looked gross. Oh, ta-da, you made my pulse pound. Whatever. Versus actually, ooh, sends chills and it's like disturbing and uh, artistically interesting sense. Yeah, you you do enjoy that and you've gotten me more into that. I, I can, at the, I would say I don't enjoy it, but I respect it. I respect it as a concept. I respect the idea because often it really is more of a study of of psychology. Uh, what people fear, what we take for granted, what it would be like to have to grapple with what you take as standard or what you expect out of life and having that like, manipulated or subverted or turned against you. That stuff is interesting and it makes for like a very different kind of experience. Whereas a uh, gross scary man pop out, go ah, and then stab <laughs> main character is it's, it's, it's beneath contempt Yeah, for me. it's not fun. Yeah. Um, but we really enjoy watching movies together. Something that Jacob and I really enjoy as a couple is watching movies and analyzing them and talking about it. It's something we, we do for fun. And it's not just a passive activity for us where we watch a movie and just are chilling out after the day. It's very active. <laughs> yeah, so the reason why we always add a caveat in here whenever we mention, especially on Abigail's end, she always likes to mention this, uh, whenever we talk about how much we enjoy movies, we immediately jump in to say how it's a very participatory, involved thing where we have agency. We are doing things. We're not just sitting there vegging out going, <laughs> while the uh, talkie box uh, <laughs> does images at us. And the reason why is that... Um, few months ago, maybe a year ago, I saw a great tweet thread, and I am too much on Twitter in terms of working and watching things, uh, reading things. <laughs> Fortunately, not too much in terms of writing, because that can be really too much for people. <laughs> but I, I read a lot of stuff on there, and I saw a great Well, Twitter, thread. I will say, I will interrupt you to mm. tell you that Twitter is, it can be an interesting place for thoughts and ideas. I mean, if you're looking for A, news, news comes on Twitter super quickly, mm -hmm. but B, people will write, I mean, how did we discover James Lindsay? And you guys, if you didn't know, I had him on my channel. I did an interview with him. He is kind of the critical theory expert. He is the man of the moment. Yes. As I like to say, the most useful person around right now. And so he has built a huge following through Twitter, I would say. And so I'm not going to give you too much too much uh, 
crap. Uh, I don't know what other word to use. You're not going to let me hate on it too much or be too self-flagellating. Yeah, for, uh, yeah. My Twitter Being usage. on Twitter. Because it is an interesting place for... It's a forum for ideas if you use it correctly. Yeah, no, but continue. Use it well. uh, but nonetheless, we saw a great thread, uh, which was about a guy who was basically describing how his marriage, they had several children together, they were into, you know, their 40s, was starting to lose its luster and it had become kind of banal, passionless. They no longer felt kind of actively participatory in it. So the guy has a thread in which he talks about how he began to date his wife again. You know, romancer, bring back uh, agency and dynamism to the relationship. So one of the things he mentions in there of all the things that they did is that they stopped watching TV together. They would come home, you know, you take care of the kids, you've taken care of work, you take care of the errands and the day-to-day uh, obligations of life, you're burnt out, and so what do you and your spouse do often? You just sit there and you consume passively, TV, whatever it is. So this guy made it a resolution that he and his wife wouldn't be doing that. And all the advice in this thread was great. That also jumped out as uh, pretty good advice as well. And so we thought to ourselves, well, huh, we watch a lot of TV, we watch a lot of movies, are we too passive? Do we not spend time together? And uh, we thought about it and we realized, no, for us, this is actually highly involved because we are the irritating people you don't want to watch a movie with live who <laughs> will pause it and discuss it. And we'll talk not through the movie as if talking over it because we don't care, but we will actively think about the movie and consider it while we watch because it's serious business to us. Not in yeah. the sense of we judge other people for their opinions, but more in the sense of we really want to wring what we can out of understanding things based upon seeing it in a movie or a TV show. So if we don't like what's going on, we want to understand why it doesn't work and what that might say about something. If it really does work, wow, we want to marvel at that, appreciate it, and share opinions. And, and so then also that's the, the, way cultural, we do the cultural aspect of oh, yeah. it all. But given the fact that, you know, can you can you believe that a Russian literature major and an opera singer like to look at the arts from a deeper perspective? How odd. How can you believe it? No. Yeah, that's the way that we approach movies. So uh, for us, this is like actually something we do. And movies don't happen at us. We uh, very much engage. So to that end, we started our Spooktober Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of the movies on this list, uh, most of them are ones that I made Abigail watch because there's a bit of a pattern in our relationship, which is I don't like hearing things more than two times. This is a pet peeve of mine that's no principled stand. It's just I have a lot of things that annoy me. I'm a complete joy to be around. And uh, some of the things, I don't like hearing something over and over. So spooky season, that's gotta go. The phrase deep clean, unless you are literally going to clean the baseboards and steam your carpets. It's not a deep clean. Deep clean, gotta go. Speaking of which, I literally deep cleaned I know, today. that's what's making me think. You did. You cleaned. You, sir? You tidy most of the time. You clean sometimes. You deep clean rarely. I'm not saying just you. I cleaned baseboards today. You cleaned baseboards? Yeah. Okay, well, that was a deep clean. So one of the things that bothered me was this Spooktober business. I'm hearing it. I was hearing this in the beginning of September. Beginning of September. End of August. I'm hearing about too much. You know, people put Christmas in July. Halloween does not need August. <laughs> and so I'm hearing so much about, like, I'm going to make Abigail regret Halloween ever happened. I'm going to make her watch was these horror really, movies. Was that really, like, a thought that you had? Uh, that was an impulse to, I'll show you seven. We're going to watch oh, Ravenous. We're going to watch uh, Jacob's Ladder. I actually didn't know that that was why you were, like, 
here are the movies we're gonna watch. Oh, I thought I was very clear with, oh, you want Halloween? I'm gonna make you sick of it. Uh, I, yeah, I didn't get that. I thought you were just on board for spooky season. I was on board for making you no longer on board for spooky season because you used the phrase spooky season. I, and only therefore, just now. you must never want to do so again. Okay, and um, to be fair, part of the reason I was into Spooktober, <laughs> I will clarify, one of the reasons I was into Spooktober was because... You're into fall? No, I mean, because we were pregnant and I knew that fall meant that we were into the second trimester. Mm. So there was this really big pull in my head for like, uh, oh, I can't wait for October and your thematic symbolic coupling of things. Second trimester, it happens to be fall. Therefore, I'm obsessed with fall. Nah, man. Nah, I'm just <laughs> obsessed with the second trimester. <laughs> fall has got nothing to do with it. Oh, man. Similar to what you might hear about a father who catches his son smoking a pack of cigarettes or smoking a cigarette. Mm -hmm. So what does this very noble and savvy father do? He makes his son finish the entire pack on the spot. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you caught your child uh, drinking uh, underage. That's bad. So you make them kind of finish whatever they're drinking too quickly and get sick so that they're uh, really not interested in the future. And the particular merits of either of those examples is not what I mean here. It's just, <laughs> you want some Halloween? You want some Spooktober spirit, Abby? Well, here you go. Here's enough of it that you'll never want it again. That was the point. And you know what? It's not a terrible point. So we'll see <laughs> if uh, by the end of this month, I'm super over it. I'm still, the thing is that also we're not got going to, yeah, I was going to say, we've got two weeks. We're not really doing anything for Halloween as far as I know. So I was looking forward to dressing up uh, as a pregnant lady as something, but we're not really going to a party and I'm probably not even really going to be showing enough for that to be a thing. So yeah, not enough. Yeah. We'll be showing, just not enough. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're working with what we got as far as this season and let's get into our, our movie reviews. So, if, if you're only showing a little bit, you could go as Poncho Villa. Or Bon Jovi? Uh, Jovi. I don't know. You said Poncho. Like Ponch, as in like you're Ponchy. Yeah, I got because it. Because you're but showing. Made, I thought you were going to say Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> Ponchovi. Ponchovi. <laughs> it's, it's an anchovy going as Bon Jovi, bon Jovi, but with a beer belly. Very confusing. No one would understand. But we would. Yeah, we'd like it. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start uh, launching into it. We're going to try and do speed reviews because Abigail and I are all too aware, all too painfully, of how on and on we can go with these things. And if we have six movies, it ain't going to be pretty <laughs> if we're going to go on and on for each one, which we uh, can and would do otherwise. So we've paired off the six movies into three batches of two, and we actually found that they thematically sync up well. So the uh, first two we're going to talk about are the more family-oriented movies. Family-friendly. Uh, yeah, hypothetically. We'll go into yeah, why that maybe doesn't apply. Friendly. And the second pair is going to be the more ridiculous movies, more goofy, more farcical. And then the last pair of movies are the psychological, unsettling, edgy, meaningful movies that you would think <laughs> a, a critic who would like horror movies would go in for. Which is actually the case for both of the movies, even though, as we'll discuss, only one of them was good. So, okay. Yes. Launching into it, I did a little clap here, which is meaningless on audio, but <laughs> on visual, you'd see that I'm amped up and ready to go. We're going to start with the family-friendly pair, which would be Beetlejuice. 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 Starting 
now. We're yes. doing this in four minutes. So Beetlejuice is the bad one of the pair because the second one in this pair is Adam's Family, films one and two from the 1990s, not the uh, modern cartoon ones. Mm-hmm. And we thought those were good, but Beetlejuice was terrible. So to give you a recap of Beetlejuice, if you've not seen it, it's the 1990 Tim Burton movie. It was his second movie. And the whole premise here is we have our uh, every man and woman couple, Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis. They have like a silly death that they experience as in they were like driving and they try to not hit a dog and then they fall into like a river with their car and they don't even know they're dead. They kind of realize it when they end up at home without knowing why and they can't leave because it's like a weird space outside their house. What's going on? Turns out they are dead and consigned to haunting their house for 125 years before they can appeal to some other kind of an afterlife. And in the meantime, their house has been sold, their house that they loved has been sold to a very grating couple and their goth, macabre, uh, fascinated daughter played by Winona Ryder. This couple that takes over the house is annoying. How annoying are they? Well, the wife, played by the uh, mother from Home Alone, is a modernist artist with terrible taste and the father is a henpecked husband who is an overly materialistic real estate broker. And so the crux of this movie is our every man and woman couple of ghosts want to drive out the new terrible occupants and so they resort to Beetlejuice, Bioexorcist, Poltergeist for Hire, played by Michael Keaton in just the most gratingly overdone improv in the worst way kind of performance. So let us describe why this is not a good movie. We actually couldn't even make it through the whole thing. We made it an hour and about. Yes. Uh, Beetlejuice shows up at 45 minutes. Out it of an hour and a half movie. Five minutes for the main character, the title of the movie, to appear. And he is grating and awful and annoying and overacted. And I can understand maybe some people think it's funny, but I personally did not. I found him very annoying. But outside of that, the the fact that he's annoying and we only really watched him for 15 minutes, the movie's pacing is truly terrible. I mean, the first 45 minutes, nothing really happens. It's Tim Burton being weird and showing off that he's weird. And that is Tim Burton's thing. His thing is, I'm not good at characterizing. I'm not good at creating characters that are meaningful. I'm good at putting you into a weird sort of world that is of my own creation. And it comes across as kind of cynical, nihilistic, and misanthropic, right? For the most part, the other people characters, uh, besides our main ghost couple and the Winona Ryder girl, are all like these parodies of human violence. Right? Oh, the, the mother who moves in who's the artist is self-involved and loud and shrill, and the father is just this useless but money-hungry guy, and uh, the wife's best friend, another artist figure, is just this bloated, kind of corrupt, self-indulgent uh, pseudoscientist artist. And the and two main characters are really, like, nothing. Nothing. They are the most white-bread, vanilla, bland kind of people. And yeah. so the ultimate result is that you would watch this for, like, the artistic statement of Tim Burton's dark vision okay, yeah, I guess the visuals are mildly creative. Not compelling, not pleasing to the eye, and not interesting, but, like, mildly compelling of, okay, I haven't seen someone do that this much before with, like, the weird, twisted kind of stuff. But once you see that for about five minutes, you've seen all there is to it, and the rest is an hour and 25 minutes of no characters. This is the problem with Tim Burton. You don't care about anyone's artistic journey or the stakes or what's happening to them because it does not matter to you one way or the other the way things turn out because no one has a character. No one has desires that you really care about. So the movie may, the plot of the movie may as well not exist. Isn't that the worst thing you could say about (laughs) a movie is I don't care if what happens in this movie happens at all one way or the other. I'm utterly apathetic. It does not move me. I stand by my point that Tim Burton is bad Wes Anderson. 
Yes. That Tim Burton is... Bad, goth, hot topic, Wes Anderson. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In the sense that Wes Anderson likes to do a topic and make it kind of like weird and kitschy and interesting. And Tim Burton's like the flip of that. It's not weird, it's quirky. Exactly, that's the word. Wes Anderson is quirky, quirky, stylistic, and very composed. Yes. But, you know, it works in its own way. Some people don't like that, and that's fair. But he has an artistic objective that he accomplishes. He is the J. Crew Tim Burton, or Tim Burton is the hot topic Wes Anderson. (laughs) Whichever one of the two he wanted to be. Whereas Tim Burton, it's all, it doesn't feel like he achieves the artistic objective he wants because the story he's telling you don't care about so it's all kind of for naught but also at least tim burton uh, rather at least wes anderson gives us characters and tim burton can't do can't do yeah. the same does, does anyone care about these people no <laughs> yeah so uh this was a speed review version of beetlejuice we could go on further but uh, that is the, the crux of our issue with it is no one's character matters. The pacing is glacial. And then the last thing to say about this is that Beetlejuice himself is bad improv. The kind of thing where like you're ridiculous and pandering to the audience with shock value and way too much flamboyancy. But because it's bad improv, the other characters who are responsible for moving the plot along cannot respond to his awfulness in a realistic way because then that would derail everything. They'd want nothing to do with him. So instead it's like, oh, that's bad. And then you move on. Right, bad exactly. improv is where your uh, co-actors can't do the no. They have to do yes and. But you give them such a bad character that all of their yes and makes no sense mm-hmm. and just takes you out of things. Yeah. So yeah, Beetlejuice. Don't watch it. Don't revisit it. Don't show it to your kids, generally, anyway, because it's Tim Burton creepy weird. But also... Beetlejuice is a pervert. I didn't remember that from my youth. Not good. Yeah. So that is not one we would recommend. But the other movie that we watched, which we actually didn't watch in October. We watched it, I think, a little in bit ago. September, maybe. Yeah. But uh, it was Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values. Yeah. So that's the first and second movie from the 1990s Adam's Family movies, the live action ones. And they are utterly charming. So Raul Julia, who plays Gomez in it, is just fantastic in the role. But everyone is well cast. No, everyone is well cast. Angelica Huston is more. I'll be honest. Christina Ricci as Wednesday. (laughs) I don't necessarily remember the plot of the first one. Okay, the first one. Fester, played by Christopher Lloyd, the long-lost brother of Gomez, uh, he appears to have reappeared to the family, uh-huh. but it might be an imposter who just happens to but resemble Fester. But both movies Fester. are about, have Fester. something yeah. about Fester. Okay. Yeah. So, the first so that's mo- why I was confused. Because... Let me tell you what happens in the first one. <laughs> tell me what happens in the first one. In the one. first one, Fester's long-lost comes back. He might be an imposter who uh, has some weird domineering mother figure who's just after the Adams Family fortune. Turns out that they are unbelievably filthy rich with literal gold piles. Mm -hmm. Second movie festers the complication again. Uh, They hire a babysitter for the family. They go through several. They eventually end up with uh, Joan Cusack, who is actually a serial killer, Mm -hmm. and uh, manages to ensnare Fester and wed him to try and get off to the family money that way. And so, yet again, Fester and his wife are the weak links for the family. Something, something. Resolve it at the end with uh, family is everything. Yeah, so the thing that stood out for me, and the reason I was mentioning that I didn't remember the plot so well, is because it is almost the exact opposite of what Tim Burton can do in that the characters about of the Adams family are what make the movie. The movie They're is a series so of scenes. They're so much fun yeah. to watch. They are so funny and they have such specific personalities and you could say that they're caricatures but they're not. They they live out their character 
in the weirdness of who they are. The closest you have to caricatures, uh, or maybe they are, are the kids. Yeah. So Wednesday and Pugsley, because they don't really have a lot of agency in the plot. Like, Wednesday does take action against the evil babysitter in the second one mm-hmm. uh, and doesn't trust the evil fake psychologist mom of... He turns out to actually be Fester in the first one. Right. Uh, yeah, so Wednesday is kind of, like, astute, but she's not really driving things. Uh, so the kids are kind of caricatures, but the Gomez character, played by Raul Julia, so is just funny. fantastic. And, like, this character is played out across not just a one-note thing of he's, like, a creepy, vague aristocrat. He's sad. He's happy. It's familial duty. He has to parent. He wants, like, normal American dream stuff, but he's so unaware, completely lacking in <laughs> self-awareness about being, like, a creepy, weird European aristocrat. So it's just extremely funny. And then the Morticia character... Morticia's great. ...played by Angelica Huston, where they do the, like, uh, shaded, uh, like, light over her eyes, mm-hmm. like uh, in an old vampire movie for every single shot. Or no, uh, an old film noir movie yes. for every single shot. I mean, she plays it to a T, but she's actually a matriarch of this family, mm-hmm. and she she actually does love her husband and look out for their interests. And it is so well done that you take these goofy comic strip characters, literally comic strip characters, that's where the Ems family is from. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you actually psychologize them. And it's not it's not up itself. It's not no. overly dramatic. It's not trying to be serious. But it's just, it extends the joke that you actually have a well-realized idea of these goofy characters. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun to watch. And it's something I would watch again. And it's very appropriate for the season. I don't remember it being inappropriate for kids. Yeah, I was going to say, it's one of those movies that it might go, it's probably going to go over the kids' heads. The parents might get some some jokes, but nothing in it is going to make you go, oh, I really don't want to show this to my kids. And it's just kind of funny. younger kids, because the dynamic between Fester and the Joan Cusack, or Joanne Cusack, I can't remember the name, uh, from the second movie, The Babysitter, who ensnares him, they don't show anything they're bald on the screen. It's just that dynamic is a little charged yes but yeah. the first movie I, I don't remember i mean morticia and her and what, oh they have name? the most torrid they, marriage yeah they've got a very a very uh passionate passionate marriage. Again, marriage. nothing shown on screen it's just uh he's clearly so into his wife it's comedically done it's just it's funny. also charming yeah and it's you know what it's just a fun movie to put on something that's like enjoyable my family used to refer to them as a popcorn movie it's a movie that's not gonna sit there your family's the first and only people to ever do people say that yeah okay i didn't know that (laughs) it's the kind of movie that like you'll watch and it's not necessarily going to like change your life or make you think super deeply but it does just it's something you really enjoy while you're watching it and you'd be happy to watch again it's not a smart comedy it's not a brainless comedy. It's a very well done comedy. Yep. Yeah. So uh, that's what we've got to say about M's family. Highly recommend you see the pair of them. Abigail liked the first one more than I did. Or rather, I liked the first one a lot, but I thought the second one was the superior of the two. So Abigail and I are split on that. Mm -hmm. But unlike our 1917 review, we don't have to film this or record it three times to not be at each other's throats in disagreement. (laughs) (laughs) Shameless plug for our 1917 movie review, which is on my YouTube channel. So now let's move on to the second pairing. Which would be the kind of goofy, funny, right? The goofy, funny, and or ridiculous. And or because, ridiculous. I think that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, just to set up the pair of them, because maybe you haven't heard of each of the movies in this pair. So uh, apparently we're very much into the 1990s today because every single movie we're discussing is from the 1990s. Oh, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, every single one. So the this pair is Army of Darkness, which is a Sam Raimi movie, and then Ravenous, which is directed by I don't know whom, 
but it's a movie from the 1990s. Kind <laughs> well, of let's, low let's budget take them, Let's take them separately. Yes, I just wanted to set up the pair. Yeah. So uh, starting with the bad, like yeah. last time, mm-hmm. we have Ravenous, a movie we ended up watching because there is a uh, Civil War history channel I like on YouTube where I saw a thumbnail associated with the channel, a recommended other video of that content creator, where it's the thumbnail, it's an image of a guy from the movie at like a dinner table, and it says, why Ravenous is the greatest movie ever made. Now, this guy does actual Civil War content that is interesting. So I've seen that thumbnail. I'm like, oh, okay, Ravenous, I'll see it. I didn't watch his review. I never clicked <laughs> on the video. I just thought, oh, okay, fine. So we end up Fair watching enough, the movie. Though, we've done that before, especially if you didn't want to get a spoiler. Yeah, so um, we watched the trailer for this thing, and uh, it's set in the 1840s. Here's, here's the plot recap. Set in the 1840s. It's a supernatural cannibal wilderness pseudo black comedy. Um, <laughs> well, and the the trailer really makes it look like a just it makes a it goofy look absolutely comedy. Absolutely silly. So weird. Which it's not. It is not. Uh, so okay, our movie. 1840s. We're at a fort out in the west in the California mountains. People are trying to cross the trail to get to California. It's still treacherous. Our main character, played by Guy Pierce. So he's a coward, actually. He's a war hero, but it turns out that uh, it was sheer cowardice. He'd played dead in a battle in the Mexican-American War. And then when he was like, kind of captured with the other dead soldiers uh, and like taken behind enemy lines, he woke up and ended up taking the outpost in like a fit of peak or strength. And so he's been reassigned to this barren fort in the middle of nowhere, California, as a promotion, but really also a punishment. Okay, our main character is a coward played by Guy Pierce, and he's out in the wilderness. Uh, he and, like, the eight guys who are also misfits at this fort end up uh, having some straggler lost wanderer come into the fort, who apparently is the survivor of a cannibal attack. Oh, my goodness. And then it turns out that the survivor of the cannibal attack was the cannibal, and also in this setting, being a cannibal gives you superpowers because something, <laughs> something, the Wendigo myth from Native Americans. So Native American myth of the Wendigo, uh, those who eat the flesh of another person, become possessed by evil spirits, become super strong, and that's a terrible thing. Well, of course it's a terrible thing. And so now Guy Pierce has to do battle with this uh, Wendigo, who has also kind of uh, gone undercover and assumed the role of an army officer because of contravences in the movie. And so you have the tension of like, oh, this guy's actually bad, but he's been assigned to the fort now and yada yada. Uh, it is a ridiculous and bad movie. I don't mean ridiculous in like fun, bad B movie, but more along the lines of how dare you as director make the creative decisions you did. The movie could be a more serious, somber horror movie and interesting. Instead, they put weird banjo music over a moment where one of the sympathetic kind of nice soldiers at the fort is hunted down by the cannibal guy. And I'm like, brutally killed. Now we're going to do weird banjo music over this. What are you doing? I always tell Jacob how important a score is. How if you watched a movie without the music, it would be a totally different film. Or if they put in different music, it would be a totally different film. This movie, it was the worst musical choices you could possibly make. There was a literal moment, the one that Jacob was just referencing, it was building the tension actually very well. It was the most effective moment in the movie is our heroes are investigating the cave where like this wanderer told them, oh, he's attacked by cannibals here. So two guys are left at the front of the cave outside with the wanderer and then the other guys go into the cave and so while the guys are investigating the cave, the wanderer outside seems to be having like a fit of mania. We kind of think, oh, it's because he's freaking out over the fact that he survived a cannibal attack here and he's having flashback. No, it's actually him amping himself up to attack people and, you know, 
do bad things. Right. And so, so much stress is mounting. And you don't know what's about to happen. And then the bad thing starts to happen. He attacks the people. And the music shifts from building tension. Legitimately well done music. To banjo funny ha ha music, which is so upsetting as an audience member you're like why would you do that why would you do that to yourself not to me i'm just the viewer whatever but you did this <laughs> to yourself to your movie you decided this was a good idea and that sort of mixture of bad comedy because it really is not good comedy yeah they bad seem to set comedy. it up to try and be comedic except we're seeing one of these sympathetic sweet characters be attacked and killed by a cannibal. There is nothing actually funny in the presentation of the scene except the music. And then it goes right back to, like, somber after that. No, Why? the the, the terrible um, juxtaposition of comedy, which, again, not good throughout the movie. Like, the jokes are not funny. And this really intense storyline, which could be done well... Is it makes this movie, as Jacob put it in this in this grouping, ridiculous. Like it's not it's not watchable because of it. It wanted to be ridiculous on its terms, but it failed those, and so it's ridiculous not on its own terms in a way that's not worthy of respect. And that's the review of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's a movie that looking back on, I can think to myself, this could have been done better. Oh, yeah, especially, and so the last thing we'll say on this, and something Abigail and I can we watch it, so uh, normally when you have, like, a cannibal horror movie or something like that, when you think of that, or zombies, anything like you eat a person, awful, right? You think of that as, like, a savage monster or a beast or something like that, whereas, like, the vampire horror movie villain is more aristocratic, oh, refined, you drink blood, blah, blah, blah. This movie combined features of both those things, so our cannibal character... Uh, he dresses in a refined manner. He presents himself as like a higher status person. He seems empowered and made stronger in the manner of kind of a vampire from the the Wendigo things he's doing. Uh, but instead, you also have like the brutality of eating a person, not just the drinking the blood. So it, it manages to actually like really render how disturbing it is for a person to see other human beings as objects to be used. And whenever that's portrayed in a movie, whether it's like a sociopath who's a serial killer movie, or if it's like a sexually predatory thing, like you see people as like an object to act upon, it is so horrifying to reduce like the infiniteness of the human soul. We all contain the world within ourselves, like everything that a human life is. And then you just see that like, used by just a crummy, awful person and extinguished is so revolting. So this movie, for all its faults, actually did that one thing well, but you don't need to see the movie to experience that. There are much better stories that show how awful it is to treat people as objects. So now we are on to Army of Darkness. So this is the third in a trilogy. The first two I did not watch and are actual horror movies, but this movie is a comedy. Uh, It's a horror comedy, but it's... Horror in the sense of it's presenting like horror elements, and I pronounce no words more like a New Yorker than tournament, want, and uh, horror, uh, which is horrific. Um, but it's a horror comedy. It's dealing with like demons, the undead, ooh, spooky possession, but stuff it's not like spooky that. At all. But none of it's presented in a scary way. It's just horror elements in the same way that you like spooky, scary, scary. Yeah, exactly, exactly. For your Halloween. So yeah, apparently our version of a five minute review is we just speak faster and not do anything with less content, which is <laughs> yeah, befitting of us. So uh, Army of Darkness, third in a trilogy, the Evil Dead trilogy by Sam Raimi, whom you would know from the early 2000 Spider-Man movies. He did 
did one, two, and three. And I always tell Jacob and remind him that his style is very linked with comic book movies because he does a lot of zoom-in shots. Everything is just a little bit schlocky, a little bit cheesy. Very stylized. Very, very Sam Raimi-esque. Yeah. Is, is that. Uh, he's the version of trying to do a gourmet fast food cheeseburger. He's like a very talented man at achieving what he wants to do, but what he wants to do is in very much lionizing the style of B-movies from the 70s or yeah, early 80s. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah. Evil so Dead quick, 1. quick plot summary. Yeah. Go. So, Evil Dead 1, uh, main character played by Bruce Campbell and his friends, go to a cabin in the woods, find an ancient Babylonian or Sumerian necromantic text, summon demons that possess people, and it's horrible, and it's a very gory, very violent, very upsetting horror movie. Very, also apparently classic to horror movie heads. Okay. Evil Dead 2. Kind of a remake of the exact same thing, except now it's Bruce Campbell and his girlfriend character, and then the same thing basically happens. But at the end of it, he gets transported through a portal and to who knows where. And that's where Army of Darkness, which would be Evil Dead 3, but its name is Army of Darkness, begins. Our main character, Bruce Campbell, is transported to the year 1300, or whatever, in England. He's caught in the medieval past, and now he has to fight his way back out. And by fight his way back out, it means he has to find the Necronomicon in this time period, and then use its power to send himself back to his own time. In the meantime, an army of darkness of demon-possessed bodies or whatever forms to attack the, uh village people and castle people that he's there working with, and so we have a fun ending sequence of medieval soldiers and Bruce Campbell with modern technology fighting an army of demons and skeletons and such. And it is so funny looking, like, in the sense of it's a low budget and deliberately cheesy, and it's a lot of fun to watch. I don't don't think that the, the movie is a fantastic film. I think that it's kind of, again, very goofy and cheesy, but it is fun to watch. Does your fast food burger have to get a Michelin star? Right, exactly. Exactly. It's something that you're going to enjoy it. You're going to laugh. You're going to think it's funny because it is so goofy. And Sam Raimi is so good at that content. There are some directors who try for that and are not good at it. And that's the stuff that's... ravenous. Yeah, exactly. And that's the stuff that really is unwatchable because they're like trying to be schlocky and goofy and it can't play. But Sam Raimi is the director for that. So the content is is elevated like exactly what you're talking about with the with the burger it's elevated by his vision and his his directorial style mm-hmm. i would say that uh, like a serious play or a serious whatever can be so bad it's good but there's no such thing as a comedian who's so bad he's good yeah, because the moment accurate. you try to be deliberate and try to be funny and you're not succeeding the way you intend it is just painful because you're never supposed to not be in on the joke as a comedian or as someone trying to do that. If you're trying to be fun and ridiculous and silly and you're trying hard and you're not succeeding, that is cringe-inducing to a painful degree. Uh, what I will say the two best things about this movie, so the first is the Army of Darkness is like a slapstick set of skeletons. Yeah, it's Very great. low budget in a very charming way and it is so much fun. It leans into the idea of the silly. And then the second best part, or maybe the first best part, is Bruce Campbell himself. So his character of Ash is a vainglorious legend in his own man, manly man, who's a story clerk but he's also the butt of every physical slapstick thing in the movie and he keeps trucking along and keeps like sitting on a pitchfork for example (laughs) he takes so much abuse and keeps trucking along it is so much fun highly recommend very gory in a very cheap silly way where everything looks like it's red dyed corn syrup yeah exactly so like it's the kind of gore that's uh, like as somebody who does not like really gory things it's the kind of gore that doesn't bother me because it is so clearly fake anything that's clearly fake 
you can realize, okay, this is just a joke. It's not, no one's really getting hurt. It looks like it was fun to be on that set because of how goofy the demon costumes are and how much high fructose red dyed corn syrup is spraying everywhere. (laughs) Exactly. So now we are on to our last set of movies. And this is the kind of horror upsetting. Psychological. Psychological. Creepy. (laughs) Yeah. The ones that are uh, the horror equivalent of Oscar bait. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. So I'm going to start off by explaining the bad movie, the one that we didn't like. Uh, I'm going to give a short plot summary because I don't think it needs a super long plot summary. And I'm... It needs a character summary, but not so much of a plot summary. So the idea of Seven is you've got an old weathered detective and you've got a new on the block detective and they've been paired together to solve the mystery of a serial killer. And this serial killer is killing people using the pattern of the seven deadly sins. That's literally the entire kind of plot of the movie. And it's how these characters interact with what's going on, with the serial killer, try to figure out the mystery, and also the psychological underpinnings of the detectives themselves and the serial killer. Yeah, and uh, so a very big thing in the movie is that the city it's set in is not named. It's meant to be a stand-in for like any American New York, Northeast city in the 1990s or Chicago. Yeah. It's always raining, it's grimy, but the whole thing is how like this society is corrupt in a way people don't care about anymore. Civil breakdown, dysfunction, complete apathy, whatever. Like people, just people are vicious, people are this, people are that. And so our older detective played by Morgan Freeman, he wants to retire because he wants to get out of the city because he doesn't even recognize this place anymore. He's become so cynical and jaded about people themselves, the kind of things he has to see as a homicide detective. The thing is, our serial killer, who's doing his Seven Deadly Sins thing, he's doing his murders as like a statement piece against the corruption of this city and this society. It's like a wake-up call to people. So there's meant to be an interesting play between the cynicism of main detective guy reacting to the crimes of clearly cynical, jaded serial killer guy since they seem to agree in a certain way. And then uh, we have new on the block Brad Pitt detective who has like a youthful optimism about, no, this society is fine, everything's fine, like whatever. But he's also very brash, very angry, and things like that. So that's the whole point of the movie. And it comes across as very self-indulgent. It's David Fincher, so let's get that out of the way. He did Fight Club. He did Social Network. He did Benjamin Button, didn't he? I'm not sure about that one. But David Fincher is definitely the kind of director, in my opinion, who's always trying to get an Oscar. Who's like, look at me. Look at what I've done today. And this movie is a movie where you're watching it and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I I know who directed this. (laughs) That's... That's not something I enjoy, generally. Yeah. To me, like, the easiest Oscar bait childish statement you can make in a movie is some nihilistic, jaded, wow, people are all corrupt and phony. Like, if you have the same artistic depth and insight as Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in the Rye of, wow, look at all these phonies, man, no one's really genuine, you don't actually have an artistic message. An artistic message that's meaningful either redeems by showing a way out that is true, or it has something to say about learning how to deal with the inevitable and real tragedy in life, right? Like, the world does have corruption, you'll never escape. It does have pain, you'll never escape. And nevertheless, we persist, we find meaning, but making people have to reckon with, there is also just this baseline level of horror, of sadness, of tragedy in the world, 
that can also be artistically useful to bring people back down to earth. You know, in a it's very Jordan Peterson esque. Yeah, in a sort very meaningful, thing. kind of sorrowful, but in a good way. This is instead just man, no one really cares about each other anymore. What happened? To everything. <laughs> the world just sucks. Yeah, and so the Morgan Freeman character, he's this jaded old man who lives in the downtown. He wants to get out of there. And it really comes across like, if this is our immediate response as an audience of, so why don't you move? Yeah, exactly. You live in a city where everyone's corrupt and degenerate and the crime rate's high. You can go to a small town and somewhere. And he keeps saying he wants to leave and then he doesn't. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. Retire. You exactly. Get, do you know how easy it is for a big city police officer to find a job on a police force in a smaller town? If you've been dealing with the worst homicides for 40 years as a detective, I assure you, you have job opportunities somewhere else. <laughs> I so mean, just, the thing for me uh, is that if you're going to have your main character be cynical right it's not just the movie overall that's cynical the main character of the movie is cynical if you're gonna have that generally in a in a really well done film there's some sort of redemption arc for that character where he learns why being cynical is not the right choice or he learns why being cynical can be a part of his worldview but not his entire worldview in this movie the cynic ends up getting proven like proven right yeah and which uh, is just like why so the brad pitt character at the end of the movie his life is destroyed all his optimism is thrown in his face the serial killer is defeated but he kind of gets away with, like, accomplishing all he set out to do. Right. And so our Morgan Freeman character ends the movie saying, Ernest Hemingway once said, The, the world is a great place. The, the world something. is a great place and worth fighting for. I believe with the second part of that statement. Like, something yeah, like something that. My that terrible effect. Morgan Freeman impression. <laughs> the producers for the movie, the studio, made David Fincher put that last line in because otherwise the movie would be even bleaker. And it feels tacked on because that's not the mood of the movie. So just this unearned Hollywood cynicism. Yeah, Ugh. it's gross. So now we are on to the final film. And this is one that we highly recommend. Highly recommend. Are excited to talk about. Excited. But I will say, before we discuss no. it, I can't highly recommend anything to my female followers that has the visuals of this movie. So this movie, there are very some very disturbing visuals. It's an asterisk yes. recommendation. It's an asterisk recommendation because I think that the message of the movie is actually fantastic, but that the visuals are horrifying and are upsetting. So may not be may not be up your alley, may not be worth it to you, but the actual movie is is worth watching. Yeah. And we're gonna spoil it. So, so um, may I give the recap on this one? Yeah, so let me just say the name of it. This sure. is Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, Jacob's Ladder, which I believe was also nineteen ninety. Uh, it stars Tim Robbins, all six foot five of him. I always marvel at the fact that Tim Robbins is a gigantic person because if you know him primarily from Shawshank Redemption like I did, they didn't emphasize his height in the movie because he's supposed to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. The man is a monster. <laughs> and he, he is by no means an aggressive character this movie whatsoever. In fact, he's like the victim of everything happening. Mm -hmm. But he's still a six foot five man in the prime of his life. There's a certain kind of comedy to the idea of that guy being a vulnerable victim. Yes. But okay, so Jacob's Ladder, our Tim Robbins character... Uh, Jacob Singer, he was in Vietnam, he got wounded in Vietnam, we flash forward to the present where he's a postal worker in the 1970s, and he starts to experience what seems like either demons affecting his life and like tormenting him, 
or maybe they're hallucinations, or maybe it's the after-effect of, like, a chemical weapons experiment on U.S. soldiers by the U.S. government during the Vietnam War, and he doesn't know if it's a conspiracy, or if he's just losing his mind, or if there are actual supernatural things happening to him, and the movie is about him trying to unravel this and figure it out. And the horrifying images in this movie are the hallucinations that he experiences. So much, like, all of the horror vision stuff is primarily obscured. It's primarily shown, like, weird, flashy kind of motions. And it has the element of, like, a hallucination to it where it's never super defined and never super clear. But what's upsetting, the most horrifying thing in the movie, is that you don't know what's real or not. And you see him emotionally have to go through it. And um, if we can get into spoilers about it. Yeah, we it, can, yeah. Uh, the whole thing with him dealing with these hallucinations or the conspiracy or whatever turns out in the end to be really his dying dream. So the beginning of the movie where we see him get bayoneted in Vietnam, and then we get occasional flashbacks to that throughout the movie of like field surgeons working on him, that's actually the present. All the stuff in the alleged present day of him being a postal worker, that's all his dying hallucination, and it's actually him holding on to life when he really should be letting himself move on to the next world. He's fighting against his inevitable death, and not in like a cynical way, but along the lines of let yourself cross through to the other side, let go, and move on. And his character did have a son, played by Macaulay Culkin, one of his first roles, who had died before the Vietnam War, and so he sees visions of his son actually encouraging him to like join him and cross over, and it ends up being a beautiful movie about acceptance. So all this horrifying stuff and government conspiracy, everything like that, it actually all turns out there's... um. A thing said by Danny Aiello's character, who plays like his chiropractor slash kind of therapist mentor character, uh, who says, you know, uh, some guy Eckhart once said that, uh, you know, when you're dying, these creatures are like coming into your life to try and rip everything up. And if you're holding back against death improperly, they appear as demons destroying your life. But if you uh, have the right point of view and realize that you need to like move forward, they're instead angels helping you let go. It's honestly And that turns out to be very, what's happening. Exactly. It's a very, very moving film. Once you know the ending. And I think that I wouldn't recommend to anyone that this be spoiled. But at the same time, if you're somebody who, who can't handle this, uh, the, the visuals, knowing the ending, knowing that these evil looking visuals are actually kind of like the flip side of angels... Yeah, it, they're it not gives demons, you, they're in fact angels. It gives you a little bit more more capability to watch it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie was incredibly moving, especially with, with the son, um, with him being kind of taken upstairs by his son to be released from the pain the of him The very ending of the movie is yeah. him ascending a set of stairs in his home, again, in the dying dream, with Macaulay Culkin's son character who says, like, you know, come on, Dad, let's go. And uh, it fades into, like, a golden light, and then it cuts back to Vietnam, where the field surgeons are like, okay, this one finally stopped, like, struggling, like, uh, he seems to have flatlined. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, it's summer that he's died, but you know his internal experience, his soul, has accepted the inevitability of his death, and has moved on, has rejoined with his son, and it is beautifully moving especially because tim robbins is just the most empathetic sweet yeah he's man ca- that's why movie. it's funny i think honestly that he's so tall because he looks monster. he looks like such a friendly looking guy but now he's now you BFG. think of him as i was gonna say now you think of him as a friendly giant um you know it, it's a really beautiful movie even though without knowing the ending you would not know it mm-hmm. so if you are interested in watching this movie now you know the ending now you know what the spoiler is you might be able to watch these kind of horrifying images with this in mind. It is worth it. 
Yeah, he's, worth watching. I mean, it'll help you because you know he's never in danger. No actual violence ever befalls him. And also, there aren't really any jump scares or anything in this movie. Uh, so, like, once you know how to, like, actually interpret what's happening, you know that's not really creepy monsters. They have the appearance of it. The movie's trying to make you think that's what's happening. But instead, in the end, it has one of the best, like, cathartic endings. And I will say, this is a movie that's apparently very popularly shown in hospices because it has such a cathartic ending message about acceptance and moving on based upon the inevitable. And if hospices who deal in inevitable death and acceptance and moving forward because that is the brute fact of life and they are in the trade of just doing that because someone needs to do it, Mm -hmm. if they're going to give their stamp of approval to this and say, this is an effective artistic message for what we do and being better adjusted to it, my goodness, is is there any better kind of review? Yeah, exactly. No, and this is exactly the kind of movie that... It, it it accomplishes what it sets out to do in that it actually, you know, justifies itself mm-hmm. by the end. Justifies it's the, the horror, opposite of yeah. Seven in that Seven's ending <laughs> is so downer. It doesn't justify the rest of the movie. This, Jacob's Ladder's ending justifies the rest of the film. And that's not to say that a movie has to have a happy ending. As we said, it can have a mournful ending. It just has to feel earned and realistic, like the actual life as it's experienced, right? Like you're not going to have a happy ending in a Holocaust movie. I mean, movie. Jacob's Ladder doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, you're right. It doesn't have a happy <laughs> ending. Except that like you feel relief for Jacob's soul and for him that mm. he can move on. But you're right, that's not that's happy. That's not happy. <laughs> he still got bayoneted to death in Vietnam, which right. is, I. you're right, that's not a happy thing that he got bayoneted <laughs> to death in Vietnam, which is a sentence I will not say a third time. This is very unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. So that is our Speed October Film Festival review. <laughs> that is it. We did it. We got through it. And thank you so much for being on my podcast for the first time. Oh, my absolute joy. <laughs> we'll see if they want me to join another. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be fun to have you on a lot more frequently. I, I don't, I think it's really cool to be able to just sit and chat with you. I mean, yeah, because we don't do that. Well, and do it on a mic. It's <laughs> awesome. And rather than like having to sit in front of a camera, which does feel a little bit more posed. And Wes. And, and less. But well, just this because is... the things that you and I already know what each other think, but we're recapitulating it here, I, you know, there, there is an element of that. But yeah. no, this is this is a good time. Yeah. And maybe next time we'll talk about some different topics. We, we've we been interested on... In to- yeah, exactly. Ideas. Ideas, philosophy, board games. Ooh. <laughs> we will see. But thank Those you guys. Those are the things I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm so glad you're a premium subscriber. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends if you think that they would enjoy it too. And I'll see you guys in my next episode. Bye.